Hey guys, welcome to another week of the Two Guys on Politics podcast with me, Brian Broking. Uh, welcome, my fellow Americans. This is Bill Lipinski with news and comments right from the middle. And uh, I'm Ray Hanania, and uh, I just want to point out Bill has a great website, BillLipinski.com. You read his column right from the middle. It's really uh, interesting. He got some letters to the editor I saw in the paper this week. So I don't know if you saw those. But today's topic... What are we talking about? Pelosi in Taiwan, right? And then uh, this uh, uh, Biden's surge of bill passages, right? Absolutely. So Taiwan, Pelosi is in Taiwan. Now, people were, why are the Chinese so angry that she's going to Taiwan? Anybody? I have no idea why they're so angry. What do you think, well, Brian? I mean, part part of it is the the whole idea that there's been a struggle for the past couple of decades of what Taiwan is, if it is its own state, or if it is just a, you know, it, it's a diverging piece of the Chinese, you know, mainland, and, you know, they see it as theirs. I, I think it is, you know, very much similar to Ukraine and Russia, where, you know, they see it as their territory originally, and you know, dictators like Xi Jinping and Putin, they want control over their territory. They want control over those resources. Taiwan is one of the most heavily concentrated wealthy countries in the world. It doesn't make sense for China not to want them to be part of their republic. Well, that was Saddam Hussein's uh, argument when he wanted to bring Kuwait back into Iraq. Kuwait was always a part of Iraq. Kuwait was, you know, broke off as a result of Western intervention. Um, we didn't let them do that. But now that I know that the Chinese want Taiwan so much, I'm going to start calling Formosa from now on. And then I'm going to put in parentheses Taiwan just to upset them because I, I am not a big fan of the Chinese at all and what they're doing to our country. Uh, well, why don't you uh, have the Japanese come back then and help defend Formosa, Taiwan? Because that we, was the Japanese name for Taiwan. You should have explained that to people because I don't know how many of them are, you know, great history buffs. Do, do you think any of our listeners, the younger ones, remember that we were in a war with Japan at one time about 70 some years ago? I, I, I doubt it very, very seriously. Let me, let me ask both of you fellas. Do you think that Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, should have gone to Taiwan at the present time? I think yes. I, I think absolutely. And I don't know why the Chinese have any right to get upset and then go, uh, you know, offensive, you know, bullying by firing off test missiles and, you know, building up their, uh, you know, military presence around Taiwan, you know, like they were trying to flex their muscles. Um, I, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me why they would want to do that. But I, I think they perceive us being in a box because of Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, they have leverage on that. But sometimes they're with us, sometimes they're with the Russians. I don't trust them. I think I trust them less than I trust the Russians. Brian? I take the opposite approach. I don't think Nancy Pelosi should have gone. I, I don't see the benefit in any level. First, on a, you know, government and politics level, I don't see why Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, is bringing the United States delegation to uh, Taiwan. I, I don't 
she is not the foreign policy, you know, advocate for this country. While I agree with, you know, defending Taiwan, I don't see what we achieved by doing that. We simply poked the bear. We always knew we would defend them. There was no reason to basically create the standoff between the U.S. fleet and the Chinese fleet. There are missiles landing 35 miles from Japan. If you didn't like and wanted to de-escalate in Ukraine, I don't see why you would agree with this mission. Because I don't think it proved anything. At the end of the day, we would always defend Taiwan. And that never has changed. Well, I think uh, the speaker had a perfect right to go to Taiwan. No question about it in my mind. Members of the House of Representatives, the US Senate, have a perfect right to go and visit Taiwan. But I think that it was a reckless act on her part to do that at the present time. China is suffering economically very, very severely. Uh, For the first time in a long time, people in China are having difficult time progressing economically. They're sliding back. So this is a perfect opportunity for the leader of China to start ratcheting up the situation with Taiwan. So it would take the attention off of the economic conditions in China, you know, and focus it on the big bad Americans coming to steal their province, Taiwan, away from them. When it's been away from them since 1949, when Chiang Kai-shek moved his nationalist forces there. Yeah, I don't know. Um, Nancy Pelosi, I think, when I, I just remembering reading her Uh, reasons for going there. She said uh, that she wanted to demonstrate that America stands with the people of Taiwan and and those people that are committed to democracy and human rights. Um, I, you know, it's hard to go to Asia and not, you know, stop in Taiwan and reinforce the idea that, you know, we believe in what we say we believe. We say something and it, and it means something for us. So personally, I don't think it was such a big deal. I think but I think the Chinese are using it as an opportunity to try and get something back from us, I, you know, with their uh, firing off missiles. Um, it just seemed typical, you know, communist China in, you know, in a virtual way. They weren't attacking us directly, but they were trying to make a strong statement that, you know, somehow, you know, we're going to push this whole region into war. I don't think we're even, you know, there. Listen, four months ago, five months ago, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, said that we would militarily defend Taiwan against the Chinese Communist mainland. I mean, how much more reinforcement did the Taiwanese have to have? That's why Nancy had a right to go, but she did it, as I say, it was reckless. She shouldn't have done it. I think she done it strictly because of her ego she wanted to make one last big trip to the Far East before she is placed as Speaker of the House after the midterm elections. You think she has investments in China, maybe? Is that what it is? Hunter Biden in Russia and Ukraine and uh, Nancy Pelosi and her family in China. Is that what this is all about? I don't know. I'm not. A- I'm sure they certainly do. But I think a, a bigger, you know, thing to talk about here is kind of the the growing economic influence of that part of the world. If we look at it, really, the only, you know, quickly progressing Western entity to this day is the United States of America. 
most of Europe is stagnating. There's a war going on in the eastern part of Europe. Russia is essentially a oil giant, and that's it. All of the economic gains of the next three, four decades, they're going to happen in India. They're going to happen in Turkey. They're going to happen in China. So the, the concentration of the world's growth is going to happen in that area of the world in the next couple decades. So I think it's, it's interesting to make the claim that, you know, we'll go and defend Taiwan, and that makes sense. And we have the, you know, strategic Japan, Taiwan, South Korea kind of box in on China. But a lot of the growth is going to come from India and China, and we kind of have to combat that. So it's curious to me why we don't spend more focus on India as, you know, a major U.S. ally to, to build on that relationship to push back China. Because at the end of the day, Taiwan is a nation of 23 million people that while it's growing, it's, it's a very small country. And I feel like focusing more on India, Turkey, and those kind of big non-Chinese powers that are growing in the region should help a lot more. You've never focused much on India whatsoever. And I'm not really sure that has been why that's been the case, but it's, tr it's true. We've just never really been involved that much with India. I'm still not so sure we're that involved with them today. And, and part of the interesting thing is, so their, their current prime minister is looked upon as, you know, a, a hero, you know, a George Washington type figure in the country. He's electrified the country. It went from 10% of the country had electricity a decade ago to 90%. He's essentially electrified the entire country, given a billion people access to internet, clean water, yeah. food, you, stuff like you're that. You're talking about um, Modi in, uh, in India? Yeah, exactly. So well, he's, I, I hasn't think, he turned out to be like one of the most far right people that's ever led that country? I mean, he he, I think he's scary. Well, maybe he is. But at the same time, you know, we can't control that region from across an ocean. And having, you know, major allies is important. And to defend Taiwan, I, I think we underrate how important it is to have an ally like India in that region. Well, well I was, uh, I, this whole thing about Taiwan got me back to looking into China and its influence. And uh, there was, there is a website and I'm going to promote it because I'm fascinated by what's published there. It's called ChinaOwnsUS.com. And it talks about, uh, you know, the main companies that uh, uh, that are criticizing Russia, for example, because of the war in Ukraine, but not criticizing China. In fact, they're beefing up their investments in China, uh, Intel, American Express, Coca-Cola, Disney and Goldman Sachs. And then also I started looking at, well, how much does China own of the United States? And it says that the U.S. imports 434 billion dollars in a year each year from china we bring in that's a lot or maybe a billion doesn't mean anything anymore i i'm not sure but i am tired of seeing the label china made in china on products that we buy in this country and nobody seems upset about it i'm hoping this pelosi trip to taiwan reignites that feeling that you know china is a threat and we need to see them for what they really are even if you know, whatever Pelosi's motives are, I think, Bill, you're right. She's thinking in terms of her own politics and her, uh, you know, legacy. Um, you know, the way a lot of, pre uh, you know, 
some big national politicians do when it looks like they're ending their term. They're thinking about how they will be remembered. And standing up for democracy in Taiwan, I think, is, is in a way, is very popular, but maybe not at the right time. You're talk, you talk about the uh, prime minister in India being uh, so far to the right. Uh, those kind of leaders are becoming more and more popular around the world. Uh, Europe may very well have a number of those people emerging. Uh, certainly there are a number of them in the Far East already. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, so, you know, I think my feeling is that we should get an ally wherever we can get an ally. What their domestic policy is, is their business. We got to make sure we put America first. We preserve America. We build America. Okay. Somebody once said, you know, if it's good for America, I'll make a deal with the devil. Well, that's pretty close to what I believe also. The alternative policy, I think, was back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, when we didn't like something that happened in a country, we just sent the CIA in and overturned them, like in Iran, um, where we put the Shah in. But the consequences, decades later, you know, we put the Shah in power and his right conservative strength so oppressed the people that they went so far to the other end. And now they're one of the worst, most threatening countries, um, I think, as a result of the Shah and what he did to those people. It, so you're saying it was our fault that that happened? Yes, we, 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 we assassinated the, the democratically elected uh, you know, uh, leader of Iran and then installed the Shah and helped him take control of the country. And he became one of our greatest allies. But the point I'm trying to make is, I, I, believe me, Bill, I, we need to make friends. I just don't think it, it should be friends at any uh, price. I think we still have muscle and leverage and we should tell people you want to be our friend because we know you want to be our friend. Do it the way we want you to be rather than us really just falling over and, you know, embracing some of these countries. So we should dictate to these countries what kind of government they should have. Rather than invading. Yeah, I think, I think we should. If they want to have a relationship with us, we should. We're the leader of the free world the big brother, you know, I come from the Middle East, the father doesn't matter how many degrees and colleges the kids graduated from, the father could have a second grade education. It's top down. The father dictates and everybody listens to the father and everything works really well until we went in and changed that system in the Middle East, took out Saddam Hussein. Everything was under control under Saddam Hussein. He wasn't a good guy. And now look at it. It's a mess. Everything, even the Taliban. We, Biden was bragging about taking out Ayman Zawahiri, right, this past week. The guy, what, looked like he was 95 years old. I'm not sure he would have lived much longer anyway. But the, the mess that we called that his Zawahiri's return to Afghanistan with the Taliban proves that everything we did in, in Afghanistan was a waste of time. Absolutely. And then we pulled out and ran away. That's why we got to be tough. Does that point not cut against the idea of integrating ourselves with China? 
that you're so against in the first place? Because at the end of the day, the, the way you control these countries isn't through, you're not going to control their leaders. They're going to think what they're going to think. You're going to control them through economics at the end of the day. It's the way we beat Russia. That's the way we'll beat Russia now. It's through economics. You can't, there's, the world is far too big and governments yeah. aren't nearly powerful enough to change those kind of interactions, right? But, but that's what scares me, Brian. What you just said is so important. It's, it's economics. And what country has a better handle on economy and money and economics more than China? That's the, re that's the more reason why I'm so afraid of them, because they have a backdoor entrance to strangle us. And we're, we're not seeing it as clearly as we should. But I, I think your understanding of what economics means, or at least what economic freedom means, is, is what's important here, right? As, as China develops into this you know, first world country over the coming decades, and the people become more and more wealthy, something very correlated with economic freedom is democracy. This change happens from within if we build up these countries. It's far more advantageous for us to go into these countries, invest, make friends with them, build their own people up, and then the change happens from within. We, on the national level, Pelosi going to Taiwan is not going to change a single thing about how China treats Taiwan. But the 1.6 billion people being lifted out of poverty, getting on the internet, getting technology, That's that will create the internal change in the country. That's where I disagree. If you think when we invest in China that the Chinese people are benefiting from it, I think you're wrong. I think what's happening is that just like in Russia, these oligarchs are making a fortune, they own everything, and they're doing it just in a little different way in China. Well, Ray, I have to disagree with you. There have been, you know, thousands and thousands, millions of people lifted up out of poverty because of the way China has conducted their economic policy uh, ever since, uh, I forget his name, but the little short guy who changed things around. Ma Ma Mao Zedong? No, 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 no. Mao was the guy that really- Oh, he wasn't so no. short. He was a little heavy, actually. <laughs> he was very heavy, yes. A little roly-poly. No, now Chao Ping, he was the guy. He was the guy who said, before we do anything outside of our borders, we have to build up our country economically we have to develop a middle class. And they have done that. Now they have done that sometimes through leaps and bounds, which brings us back to what Brian had talked about. I don't think on the air, but off the air about all these houses that people have been paying for, for probably five, 10 years, and they still don't exist. That's created economic problems in China. How do we take advantage of that? Yeah, tell us about that, Brian, because that you did before the program, you mentioned this pro, uh, policy program that uh, China has regarding housing. And it just seems strange to me, but but it, explain it. Yeah, so I guess it kind of all starts or the parallel you can, you know, make between the current day 2020 China is very close to what 2008 America looked like in the way banks builders and homeowners were interacting, where 70% of family wealth in China is held up in homes. This is far more than America, where, you know, it's considered the dream to own a home. 
And it's, it's more than basically anywhere else in the world. They hold their wealth in China in real estate. So what ended up happening, given the printing bubble over it, that happened in America, but also across the world, you know, during COVID, they expanded the amount of money available, which led to borrowing and mortgage issuance for individual Chinese home buyers. And they would go to entities like Evergrande or other home builders and say, I would like to buy a house. This house doesn't exist. You know, the, the American home inventory is built up to a point where, you know, we, we flip flop, we move around and new houses get built. But that's not the case in China where they're very underhoused compared to their population, especially moving into cities. So they need to build new real estate and they're building it very rapidly. But the problem is it doesn't exist and it requires a down payment. So what happens is I come to you if you're Evergrande the builder and say, hey, I want a house in three years. I give you some down payment and then I take out a mortgage with the bank, which is a third entity. And that third entity I pay over the next three years under the assumption that you're going to give me my house and I'm going to have it partially paid off. But part of the problem in China is these builders started to use the money they're getting in these down payments instead of building the homes to buy more land, which was creating this whole scenario where Homes that were purchased three years ago haven't even started to be built. So this is kind of where the 2008 crisis in America draws the parallel, which is people are starting to default on their mortgages or specifically in protest not pay their mortgages to these Chinese banks. And it's throughout 100 different cities in China. There's tens of thousands of people jumping on the bandwagon to not pay their mortgages. So what is this, what is this leading to? This is leading to a massive crisis because the home builders that were supposed to be building these homes never built them. So the banks don't have anything to repossess. There's, there's no asset underlying this mortgage. So this could cause a massive rippling effect throughout China and the world akin to 2008 from America. The, the program doesn't make sense to me because right now I could go to a bank, get a mortgage. If I can pay the mortgage, why can't I have the house? Is it because they don't, they haven't built the houses? The houses haven't been built because the builder is separate from the banker. The bankers offered the mortgage and have been taking mortgage payments, but the builder never started building the entity. And now they have no money to start building the entity. It sounds like a Bernie Madoff scam. Sounds like a Bernie Madoff uh, Ponzi scheme because- The Chinese government though is going to intervene in this situation, very, very shortly, it makes sure those homes do get built for the people. Well, and so we that's, tr- that's the interesting piece of this. Part of the problem was the incentive structure for local governments was to allow this to happen because they were making a lot of money and able to offer better services for people and different things through the taxes derived from these future investments. And the problem is at the top level, the CCP national government has said, we're not going to be involved at all. So they come down and basically say, local governments need to deal with this. And we needed to deal with 2008 on a national level. There was no way we're going to do it on a local level. And I don't see China organizing in that way either. So we'll see. The, the people have stopped you know, paying their mortgages in protest. You know, pe- Tanks have been deployed to defend banks across China. So we'll see. I, I really think this is eating China from the inside. I can imagine. When you Go say ahead, CP, you want to, instead of saying CCP, 
because I don't know how many people know what CCP stands for. It stands for the Chinese Communist Party. And that's yep. what you should really say. I can only Im imagine if we had redone It's a Wonderful Life and the Bailey family bank closed and they sent tanks to protect the bank, okay? That does not sound like a democracy to me. It just makes me even more concerned that we're not getting the truth out of China and that uh, we're taking too much for granted. We can't really get to the bottom of any of this, you know, given the way that country is. So I, I don't know. I Capitalism has never succeeded in a totalitarian nation over a long period of time. You have to have a functioning democracy in order to have capitalism really be successful. All right. All right, guys, and you want to let you talk a little bit about Biden, his successes, um, his surge in his programs. He's got a lot of things that have gotten done. It's almost like a campaign timing for this November election. Is it enough to save the Democratic control of the House? Anybody think that? I don't think so. I think it will reduce it between the four bills that he's gotten passed or the three he's gotten passed so far. And the fourth one he can get passed with his new vice president, Joe Manchin. Uh, jumping on board, they'll have four good significant bills. Uh, this abortion issue, I think, is going to cut in favor of the Democrats. <clears throat> so a person who I know very well, who you folks would know if I mentioned his name, was telling me just a couple of days ago that the Republicans were going to pick up 70 seats in the House. There's no way that that's going to happen. Absolutely. That's a lot. That's a lot, right? That's an awful lot. I will say the Republicans will pick up maybe 2025 max. And I no longer think that the Republicans will pick up the U.S. Senate. Uh, but as long as the Republicans get the House of Representatives, we will have government once again, where they have to cooperate together in order to get anything passed because no party will own all of the government, the executive branch and the legislative branch. And I'm so we're losing, in for, I'm losing my voice for some reason over here. We're in for gridlock then, because I don't think you're going to get the two sides together. I, I wish they would come together. There's not enough, you know, uh, I, I was just looking at the elections in Michigan uh, this past Tuesday. And what I noticed out of everything, I was talking to a couple of consultants there, the woman's vote is significant and is increasing, and it's voting Democratic. Now, I think Michigan is, has always been Democratic, but I think it's going to be even more of a Democratic uh, uh, place. I, although there is one race, I think, that the Republicans might grab there. But um, I wonder if that's happening in the rest of the country because of this abortion uh, debate that we've been you know, dragged into. Well, I understand if you go into the numbers in Kansas, there were a lot of people that voted to keep abortion. <clears throat> Excuse me. But those same people switched back and wound up voting for Republican candidates. Uh, so, you know, they voted to keep abortion, but they also voted for Republicans. If that is truly the case, you know, then the Republicans still have a shot at keeping the U.S. Senate. Uh, but, you know, you'd have to prove that that was the situation. I've heard a number of people talk about that. What happens to Biden if the Republicans take the House and the Senate? 
They well. start preparing a new candidate to run in two years against uh, Ron DeSantis. Do you think Listen, they keep... I'm rapidly losing my voice, so I, I want to say before right. I close that I want to wish my oldest grandson a happy birthday because tomorrow is his birthday. Brian, happy birthday, buddy. Thank you. Yes, I'll be All there. Right. The Good old time. age of 26. So. All right. I, I think we should end it on that anyway. So, so I'm Ray Hanania. And until next time, this is Bill Lipinski saying thanks for listening, particularly you, Paul Mowinski. Have a nice day. Thanks, guys. All right, Brian. Brian, right to the point. Happy birthday, buddy, and we'll see everybody next week. Thank you for watching and listening. Listen, fellas. I'll, I'll